A lot of people will do 1% rule off of the actual purchase price. The whole point of the 1% rule is just a quick glance. It's never, yeah. it's never anything that's going to tell us like, hey, this is definitely it. Let's go. It's right, just a, right. hey, should I even look even farther now? Okay, this interests me. Let's go. But World-class lessons from the real estate industry's top 1%. Empowering agents to think bigger and do more to create life by design. Welcome back to another episode of Light It Up Podcast. Our goal, of course, is to empower real estate agents and investors alike to think bigger and create a life by design. Today, we have a really, really special guest, J.D. Sustar, also known as the Finance Cowboy. Yeehaw. On Instagram, J.D.'s got an incredible story. He was a millionaire by age of 30 and currently has a portfolio of 22 units, including both short-term and long-term rentals, of which he's acquired over the last five years. Here's the really cool part, of course. Mm. He's been able to acquire all of these properties while working as a W-2 employee, medical device sales. He's known for living frugally below his means and putting all of his money into real estate. So thanks so much for being here, man. We're excited to have you. Thank you guys for having me. That's a, that's a cool intro. You know, I'm having to like shrink the head down a little bit. <laughs> there you go, man. <laughs> Got to build you up to break you down, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can't wait for that part. It's funny because in preparation to this uh, earlier, we were talking about you had a video that you posted yesterday that was talking about like an anonymity anonymity how do you say that word anonymity that's the word yeah um, dude i had to like re-record that a couple of times <laughs> <laughs> and i was like i was like john you know i'm really good at skip tracing should i should i skip trace it on the podcast and see if i can get it and he's like no you fool I'm, all right fine uh, <laughs> you should have because there are some of my llcs that here's a cool little nugget for the anonymity so if you put llcs underneath the holding company that's based in like Wyoming or Delaware, you have yep. anonymity and you should not be able to see who owns that LLC. But any LLC that you created before you had that holding company. So when I just got a wild hair when I first started and bought properties under an LLC that wasn't under a holding company, you could go find me under that one. And I can't move that one underneath the holding company because then that would pierce the anonymity for the entire holding company. So there's a little lesson yeah. on how all that works, which that's way in the weeds. So you could find me on some of my properties for sure. It, it, it's like a sick obsession because when we're always hunting for opportunities, it's like you're trying to look for connections between it and the Wyoming thing becomes specials because the only way you could actually remain secret is the re if the registered agent with someone else in Wyoming. And then that way you can never be connected. But that's exactly. uh, a lot of people fail to uh, put a different address on there. So if you had the LLC registered in Wyoming under your name as a registered agent, at what point in time it pierces it like you just said. Yep. Um, all right, cool, before I geek out and uh, forget <laughs> the steps, let's start with the lightning round. All right, let's hit it, ready? Yep. So should I call you JD or the cowboy? Either way, whatever you want, whatever right. you want to roll with, I'm good. All right. So JD, do you remember lying to your parents as a kid? If so, give us a good story. Oh, 100%. I was lying all the time. My dad's a pastor. So of a very large church in a decent sized town and I was the black sheep. So I spent a lot of time lying about where I was going, what I was doing. There was one time we just got back from being with family in, in Georgia and go to bed. It's about two o'clock in the morning. And I'm getting ready to sneak out with my buddies. So I'm getting dressed, lights on in the room. I open up my bedroom door and my dad's standing right there. He says, where do you think you're going? Well, just out of instinct, I guess the salesman in me at 15 years old, I went, uh, I'm sleepwalking, man. I'm sleepwalking. <laughs> 
swear. I wish you was here to tell his side of it. He said, you're not sleepwalking. Shut up. Give me your phone and get back in the bed. <laughs> I love that. Uh, that's good. In my culture, we call uh, a pastor or priest kids PKs. And yep. they're always known to be the rebels of the family. So it's interesting that you were one too. 100%. Uh, all right. Didn't next. we have somebody else on whose father was a pastor? I can't remember. I think I remember that. All right. I was going to say David Benoy. But I'm like, nope. No, I don't think so. <laughs> Can you remember an embarrassing moment that you're willing to share? Mm, yeah, I was in middle school, playing middle school basketball. Thought I was something, eighth grade. And I came in off the bench, and we were playing a team across town. I had a lot of good buddies on that team. And uh, I go out onto the court. I'm running up and down. It's like the second quarter, and everybody's snickering. Like, I see people on the bench snickering. The cheerleaders are snickering. People in the stands are pointing. And, like, I'm running by my bench, and my buddy's like, bro, you got toilet paper hanging out the back of your shorts. <laughs> and yes. so I, like, reach back, and whatever's back there, I, to this day, say it was a dryer sheet. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Everybody else says it was toilet paper. Either way, threw it down on the court. Referee grabbed it and moved it. We kept going, but it was mortifying. I mean, like you know, 13 years old. It's awful. Someone was eating chocolate. Oh, <laughs> Got their napkin. It was, I was probably in the bathroom before the game, too. I was pretty nervous. Though. I don't know. I'm saying it was a dryer sheet. Oh, man. That's good. How were you different from the other children in your neighborhood or school? Mm. These are all about being a kid. Yep. I think, you know, with this, I, and it probably started a little bit older age. I'll say when I got into school, maybe in middle school, I just always felt like I had a little more drive than the extra person. I had more talent than the extra person, but I realized early on that baseball was my passion. So I'll kind of correlate it to that. And I, I was the guy who was always putting in extra work. So I was up before school doing workouts after school, I was at the field or if it's raining, I was at the hidden cages. And so everybody else was kind of still like, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm going on vacation. I'm going to the beach. I'm just going home to chill. I was like putting in work at whatever my passion was at a young age. And I think, you know, instilling those disciplines in me young have helped me, has helped me big time, you know, as I've gotten older. Yeah. I could see that for sure. That's a good one. What's the worst financial decision you've ever made? Well, there's two. Number one, 2015, you guys had to go back and look at the price. I think it was 2015. My brother-in-law is in college. College kids always hear about stuff first. He said, hey, bro, you got to buy this thing called Bitcoin. He's like, uh, everybody in, in school's buying it. Well, at the time, it was 700 bucks a share. And I think I bought like five grand of it wow. and uh, had no idea what it was and sold it like two weeks later. I was like, this is stupid. I have no, no idea what it was. Well, if I would have wrote it all the way up, that would have been like, what, half a million dollars when it was at its peak, which I never would have made it that far. But that was pretty bad. You know, you should have held on to that. And then uh, I got scammed. I feel like a fool even telling this story. But <laughs> I, I, it was in my hometown, and these dudes were going around pitching. I don't know if y'all heard of these pine straw scams. No. But they show up, and, and they were like, hey, we'll put down, you know, so much pine straw at this dollar a bale. And uh, they do it. And I, like, had to leave. I was going for a couple hours. My mom needed help. I come back, and they would hardly put down any pine straw. And they are like, hey, this is like $3,500. And I was like, no, it's not. And they're like, yeah, it is. And there's like three or four of them and they're big, scary looking dudes. And uh, I'm like, okay, where are we going right here in this situation? Cause we can do a couple things. Yeah. You know, I can handle this the old fashioned way and uh, deal with the repercussions of that. Or I can just hand them money, you know, through a business account, write it off and send them on their way. And, uh, you know, not have to worry about them anymore. Cause I got family that lives here and I travel a decent amount. And uh, that's the, that's the route I went. 
If I could go back, I probably would have called the cops and just had them come out. It was a weird scenario, man. I hope it never happens to anybody. I learned a lot. You know, I don't let anybody hardly come onto my property anymore. But that was a bad financial decision. I ended up losing like 3500 bucks off of 500 bucks of pine straw because I didn't want these guys like messing with my family. So It's tough when they're doing work at your house. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was like, oh, it was just a weird – like you had to think quick too. It was like a – it was very fast moving. And it's one of those you learn for the next time for sure. I can tell you how he handles those situations. We once were at a holiday party. We actually, no, we went to down the shore, which was like an hour and a half. We were completely blitzed. We were intoxicated. And then we come back and he's like, yo, my contractor's at my house. Him and his wife, now wife, were renovating this property for a year. And he's like, we got to go there. We got to go there. We I go have, there. The contractor was the nicest dude I've ever met in my life. Meanwhile, I had like a switchblade. I had a taser. I had like a baton down my thigh. This is New Jersey, you know. This is New Jer- I'm ready to go to war. And this guy is there. He's like a John. How are you, my friend? And I'm like, He really? was not that friendly. <laughs> I, had fire, I had fired a contractor, this guy. And uh, he just showed up at my house to get the last payment. But he showed up like an hour early. And like, hey, he was just making all this crazy noise. But it's <laughs> awesome. So he's probably in the mafia or something, right? That's probably. Or at least he said he was. (laughs) (laughs) But it's sensitive whenever it's your house and you don't know. Yeah. It's weird. All right. Last question of lightning round. And this is inspired by Jim Rohn. Jim Rohn says that people define failure by one definition and many definitions for success. So how do you define success? I think success is being able to live the life that you want. So whatever you've designed for your life, achieving that is success. And that looks totally different for everybody. You know, for some it's flying around on private jets and doing the luxurious stuff, driving a Lambo for others. It's being just being able to be at their kids' sports games, you know, working their nine to five blue collar job, having a good living, eating at home every night, going out on the weekends, Sunday lunch, and then just being in the community. So whatever that is, when you just sit back, create that life by design and you're living it, I think that's successful. Yeah. No, I love that. You know, it's interesting. There is uh, a sales coach. His name is Brian Tracy. He says that you are the person you are today and you'll be that same person in 10 years. The only difference is the books you read and the people you meet. Mm. Now, for someone to go from a W-2 to willing to take on risks that people around you are probably calling you crazy for doing, what were you exposed to to make you want to do that or get into this industry? I think uh, us who do these types of things are just built a little bit different. We have this energy about us that has to be satisfied somehow, some way, you know? And so when it comes to, comes to me, like my job is very satisfying, but there's a lot left inside of me to give. And so that energy has to go somewhere for me. And so it goes a couple places. Number one is the real estate space. And number two is now the finance cowboy space, which is also real estate space because I'm teaching people how to invest in real estate. And so, you know, I was at this point where I got my finances cleaned up, I got my job rocking and rolling, right? We're crushing it. Got a good system. Now, where do we put this other energy? Where do we put this income? Where do we put this time? And uh, for me, real estate made sense. I had a best friend who was doing it, and he got in right out of college. And I'd say by age 27 or so, he was worth like $2 million. You know, he started just bird dogging. He was a bird dog for a group of is him and two other guys, and he was the guy who went and found properties. Yeah. And then his partner and boss – or was the guy who had the buyers and they were just boom, you know, finding properties, getting them to buyers, taking transaction fees. Well, then they started keeping these for themselves or somehow in big deals, working little equity pieces in, you know, maybe they put the deal together and now they own 10%. Anyways, he gets up, you know, 27 years old, he's worth millions of dollars and he's my best bud. 
And he's telling me about all these stories way before I got my finances cleaned up and ready to invest. And so I'm essentially getting mentored in real estate yeah. investing by him without knowing it. We're just buddies talking. And then I moved back to South Carolina from Florida and he was like, Hey bro, it's like, it's time for you to time for you to get in. Here's what it's done for me. And so it was pretty easy to, I say easy. It's always scary taking the plunge, but um, you know, once I you know popped the cherry on that first property, it was, it was game on from there. Yeah. It's always the first one. That's the hardest one. So right now, the first property you purchased, was that a hold or did you flip a few before you started holding on? What was your, uh, like, what was the vision from the beginning? So I actually, and I don't even talk about this in my story much, just my personal story, because it was just such a debacle. And like, I didn't do anything for two years after it, but I actually flipped a property in South Florida. And I think I started it in 2015 and we sold it in 2016. And it was a disaster. (laughs) I think it came out ahead, like in the black, but I don't remember all the details. It was a long time now, long time ago now, but I remember we got done with the majority of renovation, which it was taking forever. It took forever. And then the city comes by and we had to pull permits. We didn't do things correctly. So then we had to go like knocking out walls, putting a couple different windows in, whatever the case was. So we had to redo that. Then we get ready to sell it to this guy. And uh, I don't, didn't want to buy it and he didn't have his money ready. So it was sitting again. It was just a debacle. And so that was in 2015, 2016. I was like, okay, I'm not, I'm not ready to do this. You know, I, I got to learn what's going on. And plus like my profit wasn't that much. And I was like, I'm already making good money for my W2. So like my mindset shifted from, okay, we'll do some flips just to feel like Chip and Joanna and make some money, you know, <laughs> just for fun, but we don't really need more income right now. Mm-hmm. How do I build long-term wealth? And so that aside, my real investing journey started in 2018 in South Carolina when I said, okay, my whole mindset has changed to long-term, yeah. right? Like how do I build this long-term wealth? And for me, it was through buy and hold because that's where the actual wealth is built, not through you know, flipping property. Although you can make great money flipping properties, but it's not going to do as much for you, you know, yeah. 20 years from now. It's almost like a blessing in disguise because a lot of people who have done the flips, they get addicted to the way that they get the money. Mm-hmm. And then uh, after the taxes, then they're just like, shit, I got to go find another one. <laughs> and they yeah. get through that vicious cycle. But then the buy and hold is 100% the way you can leverage and, and grow even more because you're leveraging the assets you already have to acquire more and build more and more from there. Well, how do you underwrite property? What is a good deal to you? Like, how would you define that? So I say my bread and butter and I bought all different types. So I bought single family homes, I bought mobile homes, short term rentals. But my bread and butter is going to be a single family home or a residential home. You could do duplex, triplex, quadplex. I'm okay with this. But I really like the single family home in a B to C class neighborhood. So it's not in the luxury areas and it's not in the war zones. It's in those areas in between to where you can get a little bit of cash flow, 100, 200, 300 bucks a month in cash flow. Uh, you've got good equity because you're able to get it. I look for distressed properties, ugly properties, the ones that everybody's scared of. I can force appreciate them immediately through rehab. Now we have equity, but they're in good enough areas to where I'm still going to get appreciation over time. Cash flows coming in. Tenants are paying down that debt. So I got money coming in and I'm going to be able to grow my net worth over time. And so, you know, people always say like, what's your minimum cash flow? You know, I don't have one. Obviously, everybody wants as much cash flow as they can. My Airbnb cash flow is $850 a month. That's a great deal. I have some long-term rentals that pretty much break even. 
you know, and, and I'm okay with that. I don't want to do that every deal. No, but for me, it's like, we're talking about, even if we're talking about $200 a month, it's like, well, you should be getting at least $200 a month in cash flow for a deal to make sense. So you're telling me you're not going to buy an asset because it's not going to give you 200 bucks a month. Just don't go out to eat a couple of times, you know, and you can offset that. Now you can pay 200 bucks towards it to make yourself feel better. If that makes sense. I don't, miss out on singles when we're talking about a baseball uh, analogy to only look for home runs i'll take the singles doubles triples and the grand slams and so i have a, a plethora of what's a great deal to answer your question that's kind of my my bread and butter yeah so these these single family homes that are in a uh let's see b to c neighborhoods what does that generally cost you so in my area when i first started they were somewhere between 60 and seventy-five thousand dollars. Those same homes now are around a hundred to one hundred and fifteen thousand dollars. That's them distressed as is. So if you pick up one for a hundred, talk to us mm-hmm. about like the capital stack. How do you how do you finance that? How do you underwrite that? How much yep. are you putting out of pocket? Where are you getting the money? Because I know you've been super creative about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bought I bought properties a lot of different ways. So my formula. Uh, I like to use the Burr method. So I'm usually using at this point in in the game somebody else's money to buy a property, right? To rehab a property. So I use somebody else's money, whether it's a private lender, which is normally how I do it, or a mixture of private lender and hard money, right? And then I'll get it rented out and then I'll refinance it, okay? Because now it's worth more. So I'll go get a new appraisal on the property, refinance it, pay the private lender back. So he's out of the equation, he's paid back with his fee and now I have a long-term loan on that property from the bank. And I will repeat that process. The key here is you got to buy undervalued deals if you're going to truly do the Burr method without putting any of your own money in. And so the way that I protect myself and make sure that I'm buying those deals at the right price is this formula. So now my banks, small local banks, when I go to do a refinance, will give me 80% of new appraised value. Okay. So in this formula, I'm going to use 80%. Even for investment property. Exactly. Yep. So when I go to get an appraisal, they will loan me out 80% of the appraised value. Okay. But some banks may only do 75%. Others may do 70. So where I say 80% in this formula, it may be different for you. But for this formula with rentals, I'm not talking about flips. Flips is we need more margin. But for rentals for me, I do after repair value. Okay. So that's comps. What's this property going to be worth once I repair it? So I look at the comparables in the area times 80%. Then I subtract that number from my rehab estimate. And that tells me my purchase price. So ARV, your comps, times 80% or 75 or 70, whatever the bank's going to loan you out, minus my rehab, which I just go to the property with a contractor, two or three, and get quotes. That tells me, okay, I need to buy the, the property at this price for it to make sense just from an equity position to be able to pull that money out from a bank. Now, in this equation, we got to say, okay, well, are the rents even going to make sense? Because if we go and we pull out, let's say, after we rehab this property, it's now worth, what's easy math, $200,000. Sure. Okay, the bank's going to loan me 80% of that. That's going to be, what, one hundred and sixty grand, mm-hmm. right? So the bank will give me a mortgage now for $160,000. Well, my rents, monthly rents, have to be able to now cover that mortgage plus all my expenses, And so then you start talking about a rule called the 1% rule, which isn't the gospel. It's not 
doesn't work every time, but it's a good way to do a quick snapshot view and say, okay, our rents are going to even be able to let me break even on this property. And so what the 1% rule is, is your monthly rents need to be at, at least 1% of the purchase price. Or if you're doing Burr like I am, I say 1% of the refinance amount. And so I just said on this example, it's worth 200. The bank's going to allow me to refinance at 160 grand. That means my rents need to be at least 1600 a month. That's 1% 1 of $160,000. Okay. And that tells me, okay, if I can at least get a hundred, if I at least get 1600 a month in rents and I'm going to have 160,000 nodal on this property, we can probably at least break even, maybe have a little bit of cash flow depending on the market rates and structure of this deal. If we're nowhere close to that, that tells me, okay, this may not be a great deal and we need to drop this price. We need to get better rates. We need to extend the terms from 20 years to 30 years, or we need to just walk away from the deal altogether. Right. So I know that was a lot of information. So hope I didn't get uh, too far in the weeds, but that's, that's how I look at it. Uh, you're speaking see, to analytical people that uh, are secretly shaking because they love this information. So when you say 1% rule, I, w I was always thinking that uh, was off purchase. of the total purchase, the, the new appraised value, like the 200000 in your example. But you do it off of the, the principal amount on the loan. Yeah. And not that there's one way that's better. I'm just, you know, you have yeah. your formula. If it works for you, that's fine. Yeah. And a lot, a lot of people will do will do either. We'll do what you're talking about. They'll do the 1% rule off of the actual purchase price. When I've ran the 1% rule off of what is the new appraised value going, like not new appraised value, what is going to be the new loan amount off this appraised value, you know, it's tend to work out pretty good for me. So you can, you can run it either way. The whole point of the 1% rule is just a quick glance. It's never, yeah. it's never anything that's going to tell us like, Hey, this is definitely it. Let's go. It's right. just a, Hey, should I even look even farther now? Okay. This interests me. Let's go pull all of our data, maintenance, vacancy, taxes, insurance, plug it into a rental calculator and see, okay, what's our NOI cash flow, cash on cash, you know? Yeah. So, but yeah, you're, I mean, you're spot on. So in that equation that you gave us, if you're buying that property for a hundred grand, you're hard money lender. They're making you put down how much? So a lot of times I'm working with a private lender who will fund 100%, which is amazing. Or I have credit lines out with folks who will let me. They'll fund it at 100%. Can you share the information of, times, of those lenders when you get the chance? I can't. But on one deal, you're using a private lender and a hard money lender or, or uh, the one majority, or the other? I'm using just a private lender. Just a the private lender. now in my, in my journey now. So would you say that's like a just a high net worth individual that you happen to know here locally that says, hey, you know, JD, you go find a deal. I'll lend you the money at 10%, whatever it ends up being. Yep. And cool. cool. That's it. So I look, you got private money and hard money. They essentially do somewhat of the same thing. Private money is going to be your network. So somebody who doesn't necessarily lend for a living, yep. whereas hard money, it's going to, I mean, they're an organization, business, right? Yeah. They're going to have the rules. And so- there, I always say there's 7 billion people in the world, 330 million, I think, in the States. You can find one private lender. Yeah. I promise you can find one. And even, you would have to get in the weeds here on lending, but let's say somebody doesn't want to lend you. Like I have people that lend me 150 grand total for a deal for purchase and rehab. Somebody may be like, oh, I'm not, I'm not you know, quite ready to lend you that much. Well, then you could go work with a hard money lender who does it for a living, and they'll loan you 90% of the purchase and rehab amount. So now you just need to go find 10%. And that's when you could go to a local person in your network and say, hey, I know you didn't feel comfortable doing the entire deal here. So I've got another partner through this hard money lender. Would you be interested in loaning me the 10% down that I need for this hard money lending? So there's a lot of ways. Do you go out and borrow it even if you have it yourself? Sometimes. Sometimes I will just because, you know, in my mind, like, number one, I can preach 
like that I'm doing it because I teach a lot of people. So I am able to show them, hey, this is what I've done with this person. So a lot of it's principle for me at this point, but also like the ROI, man. It's like my like infinite the, the return ROI is better is, than a 20% return. Exactly. So the, it's essentially unlimited return because I'm not putting any of my own money in. And so, you know, I, I'm not going to say I never put my money in because that's a lie. But anytime I, I don't have to, you know, then 100% I use somebody else's. Yeah. So just to get everybody caught up, because I know you guys went off on a tangent, Burr is buy, renovate, rent, refinance, and repeat. JD has a connection to an 80% uh, cash out refi for a property that's already stabilized. And that's something that's rare to some individuals. So you have access to a great bank. Um, A lot of banks will say 70%, 75%. So find out your bank, what their ratios are first and go from there. And realistically, when it's a blessing where you guys are really in terms of your average price point, because this guy over here bought his first house on a credit card, right? Yep. So like your guys' price point is so low that someone could go in there with a year free, uh, no interest and just buy a house, uh, put that as a down payment. I, can you still do that? I'm, I feel like I'm giving. It's not as easy anymore. Advice. Yeah. They're it's, getting stricter on stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, you get the point. <laughs> yeah. no, it's dude. It's way easier to buy down here as far as price point. And I have a ton of folks that are in our little, you know, group mentorship and uh, could live in California or New York or Dallas, Fort Worth and helping them break into some of that Midwest, Southeast markets. Cause it's just a little easier to, you know, to get in. So it's, but you can find, like you're saying, you can find deals yeah. anywhere. There's deals anywhere. The way that we were always taught is, and learned this early on, thank God from like our sphere. It's never about the money. It, the money's never really the issue. It's always about the deal. The deal. So it's, you, you can find a deal like your buddy who was in Florida it, real estate, you had, there's so many ways to make money through it. It's just what you know, it goes a long way. We have yep. a buddy of ours who's 29 years old and he bought 62 properties last year and he has zero money into all of them. So he does the burr method, but his margins are so much smaller and his forced to, uh, he, he has connections where he can force you know value a lot easier with certain appraisers, uh, <laughs> but he, he's leveraged out to the max. And yep. To him, he thinks that that's the best strategy to go with, go with because his mindset is I suffer for 15 years. I pay off half of the debt I have on half the properties. I sell half, pay off the other halves, and now I'm making a million dollars a month in passive income. Like That's his strategy. Suffer for 15 years to make a million dollars a month instead of making, he's like, what am I going to do with five, ten thousand 10,000 a month? If that when you I do the million. accent, you give away who the person is. To hit on that real quick, so many people get caught up on cash flow. I think a lot of people are on social media and they see that it's a buzzword. Um, yeah. And cash flow is great. Don't get me wrong. But as somebody who's dabbled in this space, you know, it can get to where it covers assets. Like we have cash flow that covers a lot of our expenses, but the real wealth comes from holding it over time as it's going up with value. Tenants are paying down the debt. And you're getting tax benefits. And what a lot of people don't talk about is you can continue to access that equity forever without paying a dime. That's what's beautiful. Now, I'm not even talking about 1031 exchanges. I'm talking about you can buy five properties a year with somebody else's money. And then you can go refi two or three a years and pull out a hundred grand in equity. Rents have gone up. So now your new mortgages on them are covered by the rent. So they're starting back over, but you've still got 25 over here that are got great equity in them because you keep buying five new ones every year. And so you can literally live off that. You make a hundred to 150 a year just by doing cash out refinances on a couple properties a year, paying yourself while you continue to buy others with somebody else's money. 
that's when you you start to be a problem in a good way. <laughs> yeah. Talk, uh, life changes then. Talk to us about how you're finding deals these days. Uh, are you willing to buy anything on market on the MLS? Are you only looking at stuff off market? Do you guys have a, a guy who's bird dogging them like you said your buddy was back in the day? So I buy the majority of mine right now. I've been buying them on market. The last, I bought two at the end of last year. They're both on market. And, um, you know, what's happening is homes are starting to sit longer. And so people, like, if you look at them on market, they don't make sense. Like, the numbers didn't make sense. Mm. Uh, but I knew what I had to get them at, and I have that private capital that I can get to and do quick closes. And so I went in and uh, made offers on these properties. I waited till they were sitting over 30 days, both of them and offered at what you know based on my formula one of them i think both of them i offered at 100 one i ended up getting at 90 because i leveraged the inspection after mm. and said hey there's some more things here than i thought plus i'm gonna be able to close in 10 days so you can move up to michigan that worked and they were listing that at 130 the other one they were listing at 140 got it under at 105 it was an estate they just wanted to get rid of it and, you know the parents had died and so I was like, hey, you know, I'll buy it at 105. I tried to drop it down, and they're like, we can't go any lower. And they were hardballing me. And I was like, okay, you know, I'd love a little bit better margins, but fine. So I got it at 105. So, um, you know, on market right now, it's not show most deals aren't making sense when you look at them. But if you dig in and realize why are these people buying, how do you make a compelling argument for what the price really should be? You know, you can still get good deals. And I'm always looking for off-market deals. I don't cold call. I got a guy in, in our mentorship. He does wholesaling as well. And he says uh, it's about 43 hours of calls per, like, one or two deals. I'm not doing that. Are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> I don't need to do that. I make really good money with what I do. Like, I'm going to find them on market. I'm going to network with other investors. That's another big place that I buy deals is from other investors. They get it. And that's a great place to buy. I tell everybody and I'm on wholesalers list. And, and that, that's what works for me. Yeah. What advice would you give to someone who has greedy margins? Like, for instance, I haven't bought anything in two years because of my margins, right? I'm always looking for 70% of ARV. And the mm -hmm. fact that you do have private access to private capital, you know, your margins. But everybody has access to it. You no. just have to think about it. Well, you need to find the, the people that you're going to be going for. If you needed um, it, you could find it today. Well, I needed it when I, on my first place. And if I, you had a good deal, I would fund it for you. No, I'm And not, I'm not saying, like, I'm not pounding on my chest saying I got all the money in the world. I'm just saying, if I had a really good deal, I could bring it to you and you could fund it. You just it. don't need it bad enough. You're like me. I don't have to have it to live. Well, so I don't have a 200-door portfolio because right. it's like, I don't need it. But if I needed it, by God, we'd have 200 doors by the end of 2023. You know, you're probably the same way. That's like, a good true. point. You're chilling. It, my, well, my fear is just simply that it's uh, like it, right now we've only seen the market go up for like the last, what, 10 years, 11 years. So yeah. right now in my mind, I'm like, my luck, I'm going to buy it. Market's going to tank. I won't be able to refinance it. <laughs> it's like that's the whole fear. I think so you're I looking for that do... grand slam that he was talking about before where well, you could just, a... just be happy with some singles. That's the problem. The singles are hard to process when you're thinking about, okay, well, you know, I got to do this. What if something goes wrong? Do you, how do you underwrite, you know, shit goes wrong margins? Well, I mean, I look and in our area, housing, okay, in the areas that I buy, even in 08 or 09, whenever, I think they dropped 10%, 15%, mm -hmm. right? I already got, what we say, 20% equity built in off the get-go right. before any anything's paid down. Yeah, it would, have, it would have to change really, really drastically. Would, yeah, I mean, real estate in, in the, the burbs where I buy, usually traditionally hasn't taken 
50% hits like the stock market does. Now you start getting in Austin, Texas, Nashville, Tennessee, LA, San Fran. I mean, they're, you know, it's up and down New York city, but you're talking about Anderson, South Carolina. We, we just, it's not going to happen, you know? And, and so, yeah, I may take a little bit of a hit on paper, but you know, not more than 20%. Cover it, yeah. And as long as you can cover your payment, if you're making the payments to the bank, yeah, yeah. Say they don't want it. <laughs> you know, so. Would you say this is a fact or a myth? People who can't find deals in their own backyard should go look out of state and out of areas or nationally. Definitely. I think it's, and I teach this all the time and I've done it and I'm in it. So it's not fair for me to act like so flippant about it, but it's really not that hard. It really isn't. It just takes a little bit of that work on the front end. And there's so many resources now to break into any market. And there's so many good markets. I drew a map out. I was on a coaching call last night. I drew a map out. And essentially, if you go from like Nebraska over to Iowa, down to Indiana, Ohio, all the way down to South Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia, and just do the whole Midwest, Southeast. And then you go in those areas and look at the little micro cities. And when I say micro cities, not like I'm not talking about Atlanta, Charlotte, Nashville. I'm saying like uh, Lexington, Kentucky, Greenville, South Carolina, Chattanooga, Tennessee. And then you go on the outskirts of that. You're going to be able to find deals where you're like, well, I don't know what neighborhoods. Well, neither do I. But I guarantee you by the end of the day, I could tell you which ones. You know why? Because I'm going to join the local real estate group in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And then I'm going to call every property management company in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And then I'm going to get on LandGlide. And I'm going to look up 10 different investors who own properties in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And I'm going to be like, hey, I live in Anderson. I'm looking to expand my portfolio into Chattanooga. I need B to C class neighborhoods. My, uh, you know, the ballpark of pricing I'm looking in is 100 to 150. Where should I be looking? And boom. And then I just hop on Zillow or Privy and check it out. And then if I'm close, I go drive there. If I'm not, then I hop on. You can get on a Bigger Pockets website and they have a link that you can find investment realtors. So then I'm going to call realtors who help investors in Chattanooga. Hey, I want to buy in these areas. Can you clarify that they're pretty good areas for rentals? And then, I mean, I guarantee I could probably do that in an hour and a half. Yeah. And so. Yes. To answer your question. Sorry, I ran on a rant there. <laughs> yeah, you could buy anywhere. You, no, know? Yeah, you see the passion behind it. Now, how about this? In terms of understanding the political, like for instance, a buddy of ours that we had on the podcast earlier on, uh, Angel Garcia, he was paying attention to uh, density issues happening in his state. And right before California released, you know, the uh, where they allowed DADUs and ADUs, the auxiliary uh, detached auxiliary units, attached auxiliary units, where if you had a 40 by 100 lot, you can increase the value almost immediately. So they locked up so many lots under contract right when they first found out, and then they were able to essentially dominate that little threshold or that niche in the marketplace. Do you teach that? Do you preach that? Or what's your what's your thoughts on that? I don't have the time personally to attack those little like hot niches. You know, so like my, what I do, and then the target student of mine is, hey, I work a job. Hey, I have a family. Hey, I'm coaching my kids sports. Hey, I'm involved in church. Hey, we're in the community. Uh, how do I build a portfolio of rental properties without it taking up all my time? Mm -hmm. You know? And so for me, I just try to stay focused. I've, I've branched out and bought some other things that were brought to me, but I'm just focusing on that one thing. And for me, single family homes in those class areas have made me very wealthy in a short amount of time. And it appeals to the masses. One of the reasons I love it. What is the American dream? It's to own a home. And so you buy single family homes, you can, it's easy to get in. Banks like lending to them. You get better tenants. Think about the tenants who want to move into an apartment compared to a house. Not necessarily they're better people, but they're normally more stabilized. And then if you want to sell those, 
not only can you sell them to investors, but now you can fix it up and sell it to somebody who wants to buy their dream home. Mm. And so for me, it's like, hey, I'm going to stay in my lane. I'm going to let all these other guys talk about, I want to go buy an RV park. I want to go buy a mobile home park. I want to go buy, I want to do Airbnb arbitrage. I want to go flip this. I'm like, you guys just keep going. But old JD is <laughs> just going to keep doing his steady Eddie. And y'all holler at me in about two more years and you probably won't be able to find me, Ooh. you know, because I'll be <laughs> off the grid somewhere. So not really. But, um, you know, anyways, that's, that's kind of my thoughts on it. So other than the fact that it appeals to more of a marketplace or a better tenant, is there any reason in addition to that, that you only target single family niches? It's very easy to get into. So I know a lot of people and I really know a lot of, I say that sounds douchey. I didn't mean like that. I know a lot of people now because the brand finance cowboy has grown so much. And so I could break into other niches. Like I could get people go, why don't you buy apartment complexes? Well, I could buy apartment complexes, but now you're just, you're dealing with a whole different type of real estate. You know, now we're having to raise capital from other people and we got other people skin in the game and other people kind of giving me, you know, feedback in my ear and where's our money, what's the returns, you know? And so I like it for its simplicity. I like it because the single investor can do it, but there's, I will say there's nothing wrong with the others and you can probably make more money if you want to go manage people's investments and go buy big deals. That's fine. But I just like, I think that single family homes give you stability. I just, I really think they give you stability. Now, once you have that stability and you got good income coming in and everything's good, there's nothing wrong with diversifying. Like you can get more cash flow in other assets. Like you look at a mobile home park. I owned a mobile home park. We actually just sold it three days ago and the cash flow was ridiculous. But I had these mobile homes that I own that are going down in value. Mobile homes don't go up in value. So I bought a depreciating asset. Now I also own the land. So the land in theory over time would have gone. You never buy a mobile home and not the land under it. Just FYI, anybody listening to this, you always at least buy the land. And then the, the homes are the cherry on top with, um, with cash flow. But you know, I, I that was after I had some stability and, and skin in the game. So, yeah, like I agree with your whole method, I guess the preference and there's no right or wrong answer. It's everybody's preference and what they're comfortable with. And a lot of investors just stay in their niche. Like I know build, mm-hmm. people who stay in like 30, 40 unit buildings only. And they're like, yep. the roof of a two family costs the same as a roof on a 10 unit building. Yeah. So I'm going to stay with that in that lane. But the, the, I guess the way the rule of thumb that I was always taught is that singles are always liabilities. And I guess for us, tenant issues are a little bit more of an issue. We're in a blue state. You guys are red state, right? Mm-hmm. That's yeah, yeah. So you're lucky. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> we, we if there's a tenant that's not paying in a single family, you're completely screwed and gridlocked. There's two ways to assess a value, and you said it, you hit it right on the head. You can assess it based off of a return on investment through an investor, or a, fir- a single family would appeal to a primary end user, which has an emotional value that you can't really put on paper, and yep. that has a premium for it. However, for, sure. for multi units, it's based off of comparable resales and return on investment. Yeah, so, that if, cap rate. exactly. So, if you had a three unit building that instead of renting it out to long term tenants, but you Airbnb'd it, you'd be able to sell it on a cap based off the Airbnb rents as long yeah. as it's stabilized. So, then you could drastically increase the value. And there's about to be a lot of those for sale because what these guys did is they went in restrictions um, <laughs> like two years ago, three years ago, and they bought them with the idea of, oh, they're going to refinance, right? And pay their investors back. Well, they didn't know the interest rates. If you were to get an interest rate on a a big com- commercial building right now, it's probably eight or 9% and they're wanting 50% equity. Yeah. Okay. So you have to pay up that equity. And now when you thought you were going to get into a 5% loan, now you're at 9%. There's going to be a lot of opportunities. So you guys keep, keep your eyes open 
for those big commercial buildings right now because uh, some folks are in some big, 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 big trouble. Some adjustables. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to us about like your system and and how you're scaling this whole thing, right? Because you said at a time 22 units. Of the 22 units, is that 22 single family homes? No, the, the majority single family, and then we have a mobile home park uh, with seven mobile homes. And then one of those we sold the other Airbnb used to be two. One of those is an Airbnb. Cool. And so that's what our portfolio looks like right now. So about 14 or 15 single family homes. Yes. I'm just a analytical systems guy. You should have like paper in front of him. It's filled. You got (laughs) one landscaper that's doing all of those. You got one property manager who's dealing with all the plumbing and the toilet doesn't work and the sinks not, you know, draining and. Good question. Who do you have the handle and all that stuff for you? Because I, you know, what we hear, of course, as real estate agents every day, when we're always telling people buy investment properties, well, they say, well, I don't want to deal with the tenants, and mm-hmm. you know, you sort of have to figure out what your threshold for that sort of thing is. But do you use a property manager? Are you managing it yourself? Are you doing what a lot of other people do and say, oh, my wife will take all those phone calls? <laughs> no, my wife would not do that. So <laughs> I, uh, I've managed them before. Um, I have managed portions of my long-term rentals and I've managed my short-term rentals. I don't manage squat. Now I said that the 10% fee is worth it to me. And so I don't get called unless it's a repair over $500. And so I spend, unless I'm just looking at properties or we're in a rehab, I'll spend an hour a week on real estate on my existing real estate. And that's, that's not a, I'm being dead serious. So there's, I don't do anything on my existing stuff. So I have people who handle all of it. And if I do have to do something, it's an email that says, hey, we got quotes for this tree that needs to cut down. Here's the three quotes. Who do you want to go with and what do you want to do? Hey, tenants lease needs renewed. Do you want to sell the property or do you want us to renew it? If so, does this rent price increase look good as a renewal to you? And so that's the extent of what it is for you. Now, when it comes to, um, that's the same for single families and trailers. So, um, and then when it came to uh, Airbnb, I managed that on my own. So I put as much automation as I could. You can automate a lot of things, but everybody on social media who's preaching, oh, it's so easy. It's all automated. They're full of crap. They're yeah. lying like a dog through their teeth. <laughs> Look, you can only automate so much. And then people start asking questions that only you or only a human can answer. And so there's a lot that goes into it. And so I actually paid my mom. She was like, hey, I'll do it for 500 bucks a month. So I pay her 500 bucks a month. She handles all the questions, all the bookings, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then she still has to manage a cleaning team, right? That's five hours away or four hours away. And yeah. so uh, she keeps tabs on that, keeps the schedules going. And then repairs, we've had thousands of work done, you know, interviewing different folks. So we've, we've done the out-of-state investing in our Airbnb. And, you know, there's some challenges that come with it. But once you get the system down, it goes pretty good. So, yes, the answer my life is very easy with real estate because of property, <laughs> which yeah. is beautiful. Yeah. Are you using uh, virtual assistants at all? Nope. Mm-hmm. No, but see, I, I don't have this desire at this point to, if I was trying to add five properties a month to my portfolio, then I'd have virtual assistants cold calling and handling everything for me. I, it's just not my desire. Um, it is something that I like to be hands on with and go at my pace. You know, and so we will keep two going at a time. I just uh, finished one rehab and I got one that we're almost done with and one that's starting. So now I'm starting again to look for another property. And so we actually took a break in 2021. The market got so hot, number one, in 2021. And then I launched this brand 
And I really put a lot of my time in there. And so I just got back at the end of last year of saying, all right, it's time to really start building that portfolio again. And, um, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of how, I guess my cadence of how it goes. I, I'm not the guy out here, you know, trying to add millions of units at this time. Sure. I mean, maybe that'll change, but um, it's just, yeah. it's, you know, I like going at, at the pace I go. This, this is probably something we should ask you before. Maybe we started with this, but so obviously you're working full time as a medical device sales rep, buying properties on your spare time. At what point did you realize that you wanted to create the brand of Finance Cowboy and, and what exactly is the brand and how do you help people just because I want people who are watching this to realize how they can connect with you? Yeah, it's an interesting story. I never had aspirations to do anything like this and never in a million years thought it would be what it is today. And it's still very small when you look around at, at other folks, but where we've come in a short time has, has been exhilarating. I have a family member who I've been trying to get invested in real estate for years and he's older than I am. I'm more blue collar, rough around the edges. He's like buttoned up executive in a large hospital, almost CEO level. And so he's kind of just like, ah, you know, I'm not listening to JD. He didn't say that. He wasn't disrespectful to me, but that was what he was saying. I was like, ah, I don't know if he knows what he's doing. <laughs> and so I was like, screw this. I'm not going to try to convince him anymore. I'll just go get rich without him, you know? And so he um, randomly started sending me posts from a 26-year-old on social media on Instagram who was posting about people and, and how they should invest in index funds. And so he starts sending me this, this guy's post. And now this family member of mine who wouldn't invest and definitely wouldn't invest in real estate is now buying index funds because of a 26 year old on Instagram who had 35,000 followers. And so because he had that social media clout, he convinced my highly educated family member to now start investing. And I'm like, that's crazy. I'm like, what? And then it pissed me off because he's now trying. He's like, bro, you need to be buying index funds. I was like, bro, I just went from negative $10,000 net worth to almost $2 million in three and a half years. I'm not freaking buying index funds. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like I'm doing A-OK. -okay. And so I was like, you know what? If this 26-year-old clown, he's not a clown. He's a guy. I actually know the guy now. He's a super nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's wrong. He's not a clown. He's a cool guy. But if he convinced my brother-in-law to, or I shouldn't say, anyways, he convinced my brother-in-law to invest then uh, I can get on there and convince people to do stuff, you know? And so I started and I actually started under the name, the million by 30 coach. Cause I, we became a millionaire like, like right before we turned 30 and I was like, yeah, it's a little too niche. You know, I'm gonna leave a whole lot of people out. And so I kept thinking of a new name for weeks and I was putting on the boots I got on right now. And uh, I was like, finance cowboy. I was like, that's it. Let's roll with it. You know? And so I really started with, Posting about personal finance and real estate and just inspiration, which I still do. If you follow me long enough, I'm going to mix my personal finance stuff because it goes hand in hand with real estate. Yeah. But the the market on Instagram really started pushing me to, hey, dude, we want to hear about your real estate deals more. And like people were asking me about it. I was like, huh, I need to like ride this a little bit. And uh, I used to wouldn't even put my face on there. I had an avatar as the picture, never did reels for months, probably four or five months. And just did a lot of Twitter posts. And uh, finally, I was just like, you know what? If I'm going to do this, like, I need to make a decision now. We're either doing this or we're not doing it. I got up to like 5,000 followers in six months just showing up every day. Two posts, three posts, commenting every day. And I was like, I made the decision in January of 22. I was like, all right, we'll just go for it. And uh, had a post go viral. Took me up to 25,000. Had another one go viral. Took me up to 40,000. Another one took me up to 60. And I'm at... 80 now i got shadow banned for um three months because i was walking out to a softball field to play softball and i had my 
a story, and I said, I'm about to drop some bombs tonight. Talking about hitting home runs. Yeah. So for three months, they kept me at 75,000 followers, would not let me grow. So they released that, and like within a month, we've grown up to 80. So anyway, say all that to say, it's been a fun journey. Like, had no idea. TikTok's taken off. YouTube now. We just launched a podcast or three different podcasts. We got like all this stuff going on now. It's wide open. But the whole like point now is really to teach the average everyday person how to build a rental portfolio that can give them that financial and time freedom and that long-term wealth. And yeah. so obviously do it through a ton of free content. I try to give out as much value as possible. And then we also have a mentorship uh, for folks who like want to dig deeper, want me and my team on their side. So it's been an absolute blast, man. It's cool to see people go from zero properties to one or a couple folks in there got three or four and now they're scaling and it's uh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, man. What does that mentorship include? Are you able to tell us about the pricing just so if anybody's watching this, they can reach out and engage? Or is that sort of like a, it uh, depends on the scenario? Yeah, I won't, uh, I won't go with pricing right now. The reason why is we are in the middle of shifting how we do things. So if cool. I tell you something today, by the time this comes out, sure. uh, we've probably changed some of the way the structure is. But it's, a, it's not like in the hundreds. Like it's a higher, I don't want to say a high ticket. Like it's in the, the lower thousands. So sure. I, I don't have the exact um, because we're restructuring some stuff. But what's involved is uh, you get pre-recorded stuff. So I've, I've put together over 150 pre-recorded videos. And it's like in a, it's in a uh, methodical order. Like I didn't just slap something together. It's very well done, professionally done, in the order that you need to learn how to buy investment real estate. And so within that, you have all the resources you should need, guides, checklists, calculators, scripts, documents, contracts, you name it. And then we have uh, tech partners is what I call them, people that are we partner with. Like if you need lenders, we vetted lenders. You need insurance, we vetted insurance people. You need data on property, all that stuff. We've got those teams in place. And then every week we have uh, calls, and I'm on those calls every week. Then we have a private group where everybody's asking questions, chatting. And then I help with like personalized analyzation. Like you, you guys got a property you want that you're looking at, send it to me and I help them go through that. So it's very hands-on um, and it's a good community, but it's also, you get the access like that uh, focused access when you need it. Yeah. Cool. You know, it's, it's um, <clears throat> for anyone listening to this towards the end of this podcast, um, when, when you think about buying your first property, there's a lot of emotion that stops you from pulling the trigger. This whole podcast did not have any emotion. It was all numbers based. Yep. And real estate is the only industry that insider trading is legal. And I love saying that because you can know the true value of an asset and you can still pay below what it's worth in the marketplace. And it's completely legal and it's completely fine. And Alex Hermosi had a really good quote the other day. He said, opportunity looks like opportunity only in the rearview mirror. Yep. In the moment, Oops. it looks like risk. But yep. real estate investing, when it's numbers based and not emotions based, there's zero risk. It just depends on the standards that you have set for yourself. Yeah. You have to get to the point. My life changed with real estate when I got to the point that I realized that it is riskier for my future to not invest in real estate than it is, than it is for me to invest in real estate. And when you can brainwash yourself into actually believing that, uh, your life will change in just a few short years. Beautiful, man. Well, it was an absolute pleasure having you on, man. Thank you for dropping on, dropping bombs. I hope you don't get shadow banned again. <laughs> Hopefully Riverside won't, won't shadow ban us. You're like, nah, edit this out. That's why we got our own damn platform. <laughs> I heard that. What's the best way for someone to reach out to you if they want to get in touch? Uh, best way is going to be through Instagram. If you guys are on Instagram, at Finance Cowboy. 
uh, or financecowboy.com. We're also on Twitter at Finance Cowboy and TikTok at The Finance Cowboy. So I'd already taken Finance Cowboy, so I'm going to go with The Finance Cowboy. <laughs> so would love to have you guys follow me, and I'm here to help and answer any questions that, I, that you guys ever have. Sounds good, man. Awesome, man. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. We really do appreciate it, and I think people will certainly get a lot out of this episode. Yeah, for real. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for having me. It was a blast.